Thank you, lady. It's a very moving song, uh, thinking about the Christmas time. And as I look at this time of the year, we have a lot of hustle and bustle going on. Uh, at this stage, today's the 16th. We're about two-thirds of the way between Christmas and Thanksgiving. And uh, I'm sure a lot of us are still making the last-minute uh, decisions where we're going to meet, where we're going to have a food, or kids coming over, or, or what's happening. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, there's a lot of school play, uh, Christmas pl plays going on. We had one at Peninsula Elementary School uh, last weekend, or Thursday night, Thursday night. Wednesday night. I'll figure out what night it is. I'm, I'm so lost on a different night that I didn't make it there because the wife was playing at the Joyce Grange on Wednesday night for a Christmas program there. And then, of course, we're having a Christmas program next week. And then, obviously, in the handout, there's another Christmas program at Squim Church. There's all this stuff going on at this time. It's a little chaotic. And it can be a little bit distracting and stressful at a time that it was supposed to be so joyous. And so I think about those things during the Christmas season. But let's bow our heads for a moment. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it's a time that we celebrate your birth. It's a time that we celebrate this joyous occasion. At the same time, we struggle with all the things that we do in preparation for it and all the things that happen in our society, all the stresses that we have, that we sometimes get distracted from the significance of your birth of Jesus. Look at us now, Lord, as we think about the baby Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, we all have memories of Christmas, of Christmas past, we all have memories of the Bible stories in that. And I, I find it interesting, I, I look at myself, I was thinking back when I lived in Minnesota as a little kid prior to school, uh, pre-grade school, um, you know, I have very limited memories, but I remember like Christmas come time, there's these gifts and things that, you know, I'm only like four or five years old, and you kind of learn about the, that kind of concept. And in Minnesota, uh, for those who are not really familiar, it gets downright cold in the wintertime, and it is snow on the ground by that time, and you have a white Christmas. And then we moved to Iowa. Again, Iowa's still very cold, and it's generally white on Christmas. Uh, we had things called hooky bobbin, and most of you are probably like, what in the world is hooky bobbin? That's where you grab a hold of the bumper of a car and slide around the streets because they're all covered with snow. <laughs> Most places made it illegal, but that didn't stop us kids from doing that. <laughs> uh, it, it was really fun. Uh, but anyway, um, but it is in Iowa that I start, you know, we you go to church and we sing our Christmas songs. And as a little kid, you get in the plays or you see Christmas plays and that. And you start getting a, a resemblance of the Christmas story. So early on, you start having these memories of this, the time of Christmas. And I really enjoy singing the Christmas songs. Um, I like listening to them, and I have a lot of memories with those. Well, then, in fourth grade, we moved from Cherokee, Iowa, to Globe, Arizona. It snowed three times that winter. Once, it lasted till noon. 
And I felt like I got cheated out of the winter. But it also got me thinking about different people have different experiences at Christmas time, what the weather is like, which influences your perspective of what was the life for Jesus at the time that he was born. You know, when I first started off, you know, he's born in the wintertime. Uh, song says autumn. I've read some books say, well, it's probably April when he was born. We don't know. But the other thing is, like, just because it's cold and wintry in, in, in Minnesota and Iowa, and they dream of white Christmases, as the song goes. In Arizona, they don't think that, or Florida. Matter of fact, Australia, they're in the middle of summer right now. Uh, their vision of what Christmas looks like is totally different. And so I started thinking about what, what did things look like at the time when Jesus was born. And I also have to admit, as I got started getting older, the hustle and bustle of Christmas, you know, all the, you gotta go get gifts, you gotta get this, that. And all of a sudden I started noticing, uh, you know, as a kid back from Iowa, I was going, getting older now, that the Christmas was encroaching closer and closer and closer and closer to Thanksgiving. To the point now you have Black Friday, you know, as soon as Thanksgiving were boom, Christmas mode. You know, just, just that fast. This day and age has gotten even worse. It's gone past Thanksgiving. It's encroaching upon Halloween. You know, the, the, you start seeing some Christmas display coming out. And I resent that. And to me, I also I come and realize like, this is just a commercialization of the Christmas story. And it was very distracting and very uninspiring to me. Matter of fact, for many, 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 many years, even to this day, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Because they haven't figured out how to contaminate. You know, it's a time that we get together, family get together, we eat together, and we give thanks for what we have and what we don't have. But Christmas, there's this, all this big drive. You know, you got to buy this, you got to get the best of this, best of that. All these distractions we come up to Christmas time. And I, <clears throat> personally, I refuse to buy Christmas stuff before Thanksgiving. Absolutely refuse to do it. That's just me personally. I just, I, I just don't do it. Um, I really enjoy Thanksgiving, but Christmas. But I also found that when I got within a couple of three days, you know, or a day before Christmas that, my Christmas spirit, you know, about the birth of Jesus came, becomes enlightened a lot more. Because a lot of the hustle and bustle and all the distractions have toned down, and now you're getting focused to this Christmas time. And there's still a lot of Christmas gifts and, and you know, everything's up, but the shopping has been done. And now you can spend some time really thinking about the birth of Jesus. What is this about? And, you know, and I always remind myself that in the Christmas story, the Christmas event, we had the three wise men, or I, there you go, three. We don't know how many. But anyway, they came and they gave gifts. So that may be the trigger that, that at Christmas time, the start of giving gifts to each other. I don't know the history of gift, gift giving at Christmas, but it's just kind of something I thought about. So as I got older, you know, I, we have memories of what we think Christmas is about. We read the Bible. We see and hear the stories now. But I find it interesting what we see and hear influences what we read. And sometimes we read into things more, or there's sometimes there is... Uh, um, Additional information given with no basis for it. And what I'm already kind of gave away is the three wise men. 
we three kings, the three magi. Well, nothing ever said they're kings or that they're magi, but where did the number three come from? Huh? The gifts, the gifts yeah. So they assume that if there's three different gifts, there was only three different people. There's nothing that says that. There could have been a dozen of them. And they give all similar gifts in, in a caravan. Where does this three come from? And we get these little things added to the story that's not in the Bible. And so I was reading, uh, somebody gave me this book, and I just read a little bit of it. I got still, still finished reading this book. It is, it's titled, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Although well, that's interesting, you know, I'm not from the Middle East. They know what the climate, the terrain, and some other things. So I thought, okay, this would be kind of, could be interesting to read. And it starts right off early on with Jesus' birth. And I tell you, I have some mind shifting to do. And, uh, and he makes a lot of Bible references in there, and I verify them. And I, and I just kind of start thinking about, well, how much of my beliefs have been swayed or influenced by things that are not in the Bible, but by, by stories? And so I started looking into that. So uh, what I'm going to share with you is some of our memories of Christmas. you got a lot of your memories to pass. But I'll share some things that the book brought out, as well as going through the Bible, of, of some things that, that happened. And so the first thing I want to talk about, the uh, no room at the inn. I, in, in the Bible, you've, everybody's heard that. There's no room at the inn. And if you start researching what the inn was, you know, uh, when I hear the word inn, this is what I think of. I think of a, like a little pub restaurant place with some living quarters around there. That's what I kind of envision. And that's probably uh, a little bit more 18th century or whatever that was in. But the, but the word inn is not a really good translation in, in the Bible. You get to the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, it's probably closer to housing or uh, a a house, or a guest house, or, or something of that nature. And so it started looking at what was the housing situation in that day and age. Now, my wife Marlene, she is into biblical archaeology. She likes watching that in, on the television. She finds things on YouTube or somewhere, and then she pulls those up. And there's some fascinating stuff. And when you look at the archaeology, the they're always they're looking for the glorious stuff that you know get their name recognition. So they're always looking like either at the temple, here's the temple, and here's what we found here, here how it's all laid out, or here's the the, the, the David's uh, th uh, house, here's the proof for it, and whatever. They put a lot of emphasis on the big glory stuff, but what about the common person in that? Well, they do know about what the common person had for housing. They just don't say a whole lot about it because it's not as glamorous as uh, as going through the temple ruins or going through uh, the, the, the throne or something of that nature. So I started looking at, well, what is the, the, the typical house that Jesus may have to have been looking for? And as a kid, I always envisioned that they went to Bethlehem to try to find a place and they went into, they ended up being out in some barn somewhere and stable nap. And because there's no room for an inn and then you about the manger. Well, the, the housing was a little bit different, and so I'm going to have you guys pull up the first diagram. If you were living out in the country as a farmer or a poor person in town, 
you would have a floor plan, something like this, a, basically a one-room house. And uh, we don't relate to that. Uh, we don't even relate to it like a four-room house or whatever. One-room house. So you would have the family living area, and then you would have a stable, and you'd have steps coming down uh, in there. And the, this would be the typical layout of a house, it's just a one-room house. And you go, like, well, did they really have one-room houses? Well, if you went into town, they had larger houses and stuff of that nature. But, in, uh, but the concept of a one-room house is not that far-fetched because when I was in college, I worked out on the Navajo Indian Reservation here in the United States. They had one-room houses. There are lots of people still living in one-room houses in this country, in our United States, throughout the world. It's amazing. We just don't relate to it. So they had, what they would do is they had the stables at the one end. That would be, because at nighttime, uh, if you were not very rich, the last thing you want to do is have some wolf take out a sheep or somebody steal it or your cattle or something happen to it. So you bring them in for safety reason, and then you feed them some hay and bed them down for the night. And then when you get up in the morning, the first thing you want to do is open the door and they, the livestock bolts out because they're tired of being there all night. They're ready to go out and enjoy the day. And the first ones kind of go out there. And the book pointing out the proof of the story, um, now I can't think of the person's name, but who was the, the guy that promised the first thing to come out their door, he'd offer a sacrifice if they won the war? What's that? Death. Death, Okay. And these references, that's a classic example. Of, would he have done that if it was just their house? Sacrifice his kid? No, what he was expecting when he got home, show up in the morning, that he would expect an animal to come out of the stable first. Then the family, you know, kids and that come out afterwards. But probably his daughter came out, saw him in the window, came bolting out of the house where the animal, animals had a chance to get out. His heart was broken. But it was common for people to have their animals in the house, in the one inn, and they would come out. So these types of abodes existed in Jesus' time. Can you go to the next slide? And, that, and it kind of a little bit of floor plan there. The living area was usually up a little bit higher. It, varied. it all depends on the terrain and the environment they, they lived in. And they'd be made out of rock or mud bricks or, or something of the nature. The floor would be tile and it's slightly towards the stable so that any liquid spill would go that direction and you sweep it out. So first thing in the morning, you let the animals out, you sweep the place out, and you clean the stables and get the things out of there. And so there's the doors and the steps, just kind of show a simplistic version of it. Of course, a lot of them are weird shapes and stuff like that. And as, and as I was looking through the internet, and I, uh, one person commented, says, a lot of times these places for furniture, they would have like a table and then they would have like one chest, maybe two chests. And that's really all they had for furniture in there. There's, these are small one-room house family lived in it. So can you go to the next slide? So now if you uh, have a little bit more means or have time, you could add a guest room on the end of your house. There's a lot of configurations to do that, a guest room. Or they often used the roofs, they were flat as a place for a guest to stay too. They have balcony around the edges. They did laundry. They did all kinds of things up on their roofs. They used their roofs in that. But this is a typical layout. 
And if you're referring to what's biblical in the housing situation, there's no room in the end, they're referring to either the guest room or the roof, you know, for people to stay. But what was happening at this time? Why would a guest room be filled up? What's that? The census. The census was happening. So you got all these people coming into town, crowding there, seeing their relatives, seeing whatever now. Depends when you get there, the place is full. I mean, uh, <clears throat> you get some places, um, they have, it's like trying to find uh, um, some motel in Seattle when the Seahawks were winning, their winning days, Super Bowl days and that. Try to find some place where, you know, some vacant room. So this is what they're describing as a housing. They're very weird shape in that, whatever. So when Joseph and Mary came in to town, um, these are probably the type of places they were looking for. They didn't have a lot of time standalone barns. Some of the, uh, you know, if you finally come out from the poor, but you get a little richer, maybe your whole family have about three or four of these, five of these all together with a perimeter wall, you know, around there, and then you would have a courtyard. That's a definite upgrade in that, looking at archaeological record. You see that a lot of times in archaeology. So I, I envision here is where the mangers are up on there, where Jesus would be laid because they had minimal um, furniture. And the animals already be laying down for the night. And, and for that. So that's a, my perception of the building, and the, the word inn is a problem. There's no room in the inn. And I'm sure a lot of people are like, you know, we already got company here. We already got somebody in our guest room. We already got somebody in our, close to our inn or upstairs. We just, so finally, you know, one family took them in to just their main living area, and they, they were with the rest of their, the, the main family. And so you, you imagine it was probably quite cozy, uh, those small places uh, in there. So, so I started looking at the housing, and, and I want to have you a finer appreciation of, of this housing situation. They're often made, the walls are made out of brick or rock or mud. When we moved from Iowa to Globe, Arizona, we moved into an adobe house. Anybody familiar with adobe houses? Yeah, how thick are the walls? They're quite thick. And they're thick not for structural reasons, although it provides a great structure. I, I noticed as a kid, here I am in fourth grade now, that during the daytime the house was cool, but at nighttime the house was warm. It just reverses itself. It's like, oh, it's happening there. And these walls, you know, they're made out of rocks, bricks, or whatever. So the sun would beat on the outside of the, the adobe structure and just beat on it all day long. You know, in Arizona, it's hot. And it just, the heat is slowly soaking into those walls, slowly soaking through the wall, just slowly all day long, just slowly soaking through the wall. And then finally it comes down to sunset. Now, if you're in a dry climate, the Temperature variance from daytime to nighttime can vary by like 30 to 40 degrees. Just, I mean, it's huge. Not compared to what's like here, where if you're in the more humid climate, you have the less the variance, you might, might get maybe a 10 degree variance, but that's about it. So at nighttime, the heat finally came through the walls and would warm up the house so it wasn't cold inside the house at nighttime. Meanwhile, as it's warming up the inside of the house, on the outside, the coldness of the night is slowly working its way through so that come about morning, 
When the sun comes out and starts getting hot, the coolness of the walls is coming through and cooling off the house. So when they made these things, these are very practical, functional, maybe minimalistic, but they were very, uh, very uh, effective. And so as my childhood memory is one of the things I can relate to this type of housing because I lived in a larger, but a, uh, an adobe house or whatever they had. Um, and, and actually, it's, it's, it's kind of more elongated like that because I remember mom and dad slept in the room there. There's another room. Then we had dining and then the living room and no stable anyway. Uh, but that was our house in Glover, Arizona. It was an uh, interesting experience to have that. I always thought, man, that was a cool design. <coughs> so, so I kind of made a paradigm shift in my head is where did Mary... And Joseph stay at. And we have that term of the inn, no room in the inn in there. And it creates a, a kind of interesting vision because we put a lot of times a modern uh, definition to those words now. Uh, but the other thing uh, I always was amazed at is um, when, how long did it take him to find this place? Because I always envision that Mary and Joseph came to town, place is packed, and they're struggling to find found, like I said, a barn or wherever place where they could stay, and then she had the kid that night. And this book challenges that question, and it goes to the Bible. And if I go to Luke, there's a statement there. <clears throat> Joseph had gone from Nazareth to... Uh, Bethlehem, and he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting child. I should have said that this is uh, Luke 2, verse 5, starting in verse 5. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. While they were there, came time for the baby born. How long is that duration? Some translations put in the word days in there were days there. They've been there for a while. So it's not my vision that all of a sudden they're in desperation trying to find lodging in there and then she out pops the kid and, and the strange thing. It turns out they were out there. And the, the book further kind of explains this is the town of David, Bethlehem. Who's Joseph a relative of? What is his lineage? Was David. Would he have any relatives in that town? Uh, and he saw, they probably got there and started working. Traveling was, you know, another story. So they came there, it's just like, it wasn't just overnight. They'd been there for a while because, you know, you got to find job, work, do stuff and that. And so, uh, matter of fact, she traveled up from seeing Elizabeth um, and that traveling. And, and, and I started looking at, you know, anybody ever thought about how far it took from Nazareth to Bethlehem, how, far, how long it takes to travel that? 60 miles? Actually, I thought things said, I got on Google, said 70 miles. But that's with today's modern roads. But if you look at the path that they would probably along the river and stuff like that, it's probably closer to 90. But 70, 90, something, it's, it's, it's a, not. so how many of you have ever uh, traveled by foot for a day? 
How to the woods now. How many miles did you get? You're over 10, you're hurting. <laughs> you know, I started thinking about the concept of traveling. And Mary's pregnant, by the way. So, you know, she's not going to be just hoofing it big time. And that, so when she was traveling and those things, so she had to have travel some time. Also, my time period starts stretching out. I have had to rethink, re, I, you know, as I, as, a, as, as, a, as the text said, ponder upon these things. And I started thinking about their traveling experience. To travel from um, Bethlehem to Nazareth, it's like going from downtown Port Angeles to downtown Squim, making that trip five times. So you travel, you leave Port Angeles, go to Squim once, come back from Squim twice, Squim again, back again. Five trips. Now, how many of you have ever walked from here to Squim? Let alone some biking or something like that. Yeah, It's a long walk. Now, I can remember I did a 20-mile trek one day uh, um, when I was in Sugar City, Idaho, waiting for the, my patent boss from Water Towers to show up and start my first day of work. I had it there early. So, well, I'll walk this loop. Now, so that should be no biggie. I tell you, when I was coming there and I said I was not going to hitchhike or take any rides, and I didn't. But I tell you, at the end of that day, I was one tired puppy. My feet were sore. And it's like, that was not a very smart thing to do. <laughs> you want to pace things out a little bit. And I was in shape those days. Uh, kind of thing. And, and, and it's like, and I also remember, like, I got really thirsty because I didn't take any water with me. So anyway, just some kind of a, a things, uh, memories. And I take my memories, how they, they influence my thoughts about uh, time of Jesus. So you look at your memories. How did that influence it? What have you heard? What the stories? Even simple little pictures like this. I, I think of children's stories, the things you soak in, and then what comes out, you know, it's just, and, and some of it's very innocent. We didn't mean to, you know, like the three wise men. Well, you know, it's at the end of the world, but it's not correct. And so I started looking at, so here's Mary comes in Joseph town, and they, they find some lodging with some relatives in that. And I, I, I thought this really interesting, the statement, this uh, book from Middle Eastern um, thing. And it's talking about Mary's uh, birth. In every culture, a woman about to give birth is given special attention. Simple rural communities in the world over always assist one of their own women in childbirth, regardless of circumstances. Are we to imagine that Bethlehem was the exception? Was there no sense of honor in Bethlehem? Surely the community would have sensed its responsibility to help Joseph and find an adequate shelter for Mary and to provide the care she needed. To turn away a descendant of David in the city of David would be unspeakable shame on the entire village. And I go, well, that gives me a whole different perception. Because I always had envisioned that Mary, when she had the baby, she was by herself. Uh, the Bible doesn't say one way or the other. There's a lot of missing detailed information. But we want to add something, make it very unique, or like you know, the hardship or the whatever now. 
Uh, and it was hard. It was very poor. Jesus came in the world with nothing as a baby. He left in the world as a baby. So, re-looking at the Bible and rereading the story, this book kind of gave me some hints to kind of look at things. Maybe you need a different perspective. Maybe you need to check what the influences you've had on your on your uh, story, on the story, the event, the historical event of Jesus, how it's been slightly distorted, and what is really there and what is really not there. Maybe, like Mary, we need to ponder upon these things. I'm thinking about the significance. The Bible gives us what is important. We have to be careful what we add to it. We have to be careful but we didn't realize what we add to it or others add to it. And so I've, even in preparing for this, you know, I've had to reread several things and that, and I was floundering about, what all do I talk about in here? And, and there, there's so much. Uh, even the issue of, for example, when did Joseph and Mary left, leave? Well, she had the baby, the shepherds came, the magi came, and the Lord told the Magi, don't go back to Herod. Herod was unhappy. He told him, go start killing every kid that's two years or younger. And, that. and they go, what's that time lapse? Well, if you read a little bit further on, you, you find that, well, on the, as customary, on the eighth day, they had circumcision. So they were there for a while. It, the other thing is, and I had envisioned, like, I always had envisioned, like, they, they took off right away. Well, that probably would not have been very healthy for Mary after just having birth. Probably would have killed her if they immediately took off and had to do a long trip to Egypt. But the Lord provided for Mary and Joseph, for the baby Jesus, God the Father, provided for them. And so, and then there's some other events that happened. And then they went south to Egypt. And it's interesting because Luke has tells of these Bibles events, but it's in Matthew where you hear about the Magi. But you don't hear about the shepherds. You don't hear about the other things. So, okay, where do these fit in? And how does everything all play together? So, what I like to say is take the time through this Christmas season. Slow down from all the hustle and bustle. Read the Christmas story. And ponder upon it for a while. You may have to reread it a few times to find out how you've been biased or been influenced. But take a relook at the Christmas story. Let's turn to, is it hymn 140? Thou leave thy throne. Closing hymn. Thou didst leave thy throne. Please stand as we sing this beautiful song for our closing.
shade of the forest tree, but thy couch was Heavenly Father, let us remember the Christmas story, and let us remember it correctly. We realize we're influenced by outside things, and it, it, it just happens. But you've told us what the true story is. We need to contemplate about the birth of Jesus. We need to contemplate about his whole life and why he was sent here on earth. Because it's through him that we have salvation. Thank you, Lord, and be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 